Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of Talking France, a weekly podcast by The Local. There's no shortage of major talking points and interesting matters in France that we need to get through this week, including what the heightened terror alert means for all of us in France and why the government fears yet more attacks. On a very different note, we'll examine why the stories of lonely French farmers finding love among the crops and cows are cherished in France. We'll also hear about some major changes for the Paris region in the coming years that will transform how people get around the area. We'll examine why doctors in France are on strike and why the system of GPs is not in good health. And if you have an appetite for more, we'll answer the big question of the week. Is McDonald's in France healthier than McDonald's in America? There is a lot riding on the answer to that question, for me anyway. I'm Ben McPartland, your host, and I'll be joined this week by three very wise individuals, the local France's Emma Pearson and Jen Mansfield, as well as politics expert John Litchfield. Emma, Jen and John, good to have you all with us once again. We should start with the main story of the week in France. Last Friday, a 20-year-old man entered his former high school in the northern town of Arras and stabbed French teacher 57-year-old Dominique Bernard to death in what President Emmanuel Macron described as a barbaric Islamist terror attack. Since then, France has raised the terror alert to its maximum level, which is called Urgence Attentat, which, according to the Interior Ministry site, will be in place, quote, for a limited time until the end of the crisis. France is on high alert, Emma, and the government has taken steps to avert the threat of more attacks. What's changed for us here in recent days then? Well, I mean, there's probably all sorts of things happening behind the scenes in the intelligence and police services. But I think for most people, the most visible symbol of the heightened terror alert is the 7,000 soldiers deployed on the streets of France. And I think this has been really noticeable in the the towns and cities. In my neighbourhood, for example, there are police officers stationed outside the local synagogue. When I walked past the primary school at drop-off time, there were soldiers stationed outside there too. But I should say that soldiers patrolling the streets of France is nothing new. All that we've seen recently is an increase in the numbers. And in fact, there has been a military presence on the ground since 2015. After the Charlie Hebdo terror attacks, the then president, Francois Hollande, he created what is called Operation Sentinelle, Operation Guardian. And that basically means that regular soldiers in the French army and some reservists as well do a tour of duty under the auspices of Operation Sentinelle. And mainly what they do is patrol areas that are considered to be at high risk of a terror attack. Usually it's been like the high profile tourist sites, such as maybe the Eiffel Tower, and the transport interchanges, so like mainland railway stations and airports. But since Friday's terror attack, that has also included schools and Jewish religious sites. So they patrol in uniform with with big guns. Sorry to any military types listening for that vague description, but they're in groups of three to six. They're usually on foot and you sometimes see them in marked vehicles too. All of the different regiments from the French army take a turn on Sentinelles. So you'll see a variety of different headgear, the different size and shape. Berets is how you tell what regiment they're in. They're mostly French, but actually soldiers of the, the Légion Étrangère, the French Foreign Legion, also take a turn doing this. 
Yes, you do see soldiers on the street. You have done since 2015, like you said, Emma. I was just looking at this urgence attentat, the heightened terror alert level, see what it means. And there are lots of measures, particularly around schools and perhaps entrance to sports halls, swimming pools, where you might ask to get your bag checked. We should say also that it's just over three years since another teacher, Samuel Patty, was murdered, I think, just outside a school to the north of Paris. So tensions are high. You know, the government is on alert. And Emma, in recent days, tourist sites like Versailles has been uh, evacuated evacuated twice, the Louvre once. We've had airports around France being evacuated over terror threats. Everyone's a bit jumpy right now in France, fair to Uh, say. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, I should say that the Interior Minister has said that there were no actual credible terror threats against any of these targets. But I think, as you say, it just goes to show that people are really, really on edge about this kind of thing. Mm. Apart from practical security matters then, Emma, remind us what the political response has been to this teacher attack. Well, I mean, naturally, politicians from all across the political spectrum have expressed shock and horror, solidarity with the schools and condolences to the victims and their families. Emmanuel Brigitte Macron will be attending the funeral of Dominique Bernard, the murder teacher, on Thursday. But outside of that response and outside of the security concerns, I think probably the biggest political conversation has been around the expulsion of radicalised foreigners, with the Interior Minister Gerard Darmanin saying that he has a list of 200 radicalised foreigners who he wants to expel from the country. Macron himself said that he wanted ministers to, and I quote, embody a ruthless state towards all of those who harbour hate and terrorist ideologies. He's also called on police to comb through their files of radicalised people who could be deported from France to make sure that no one was overlooked. And he's told the Interior Ministry to take a special approach to young men between the ages of 16 and 25 from the Caucasus. Now, the context to this is that Friday's attacker was actually a Russian national of Chechen origin. He'd been in France since he was five years old. He had claimed asylum here, but had been turned down. However, he couldn't be deported under French law because he had arrived here before the age of 13, and France does not allow that. His father, however, had been expelled from France in 2018, and his brother is currently serving a prison sentence for extreme related activity. This young man, uh, Mohamed Mogushkov, age 20, he was known to police for his radical Islamist views and he'd actually been under active surveillance by the DGSI, which is the Internal Security Service, since July, although clearly, given what happened, he was not monitored closely enough. So he was Fiche S. Emma. This term comes up a lot after attacks in recent years. Often we have attacks that are committed, suspects are identified, and then it's revealed that these suspects were what's known as fiché S, which often leads to political rows and criticism of intelligence services. What does fiché S mean, Emma? Yeah, you'll hear this term in France a lot whenever there is a terror attack. It refers to the fichier des personnes recherchées, which is a database of sort of wanted criminals, escaped prisoners, and also people who potentially pose a threat to state security. There are different categories, but the S refers to security and un fichier, un fiche, uh, just means a file and fichier is the verb. So people who are fichier S are those who have a file because it's thought that they might pose a threat to state security. It's basically the same as being put on a terror watch list. Those who are Fiché S, they include radical Islamists, but also others including radical environmentalists, far-right activists, people who regularly take part in violent protests or even football hooligans. So it's a bit of police jargon, but it's really entered the mainstream in recent years. In fact, I even heard someone recently joking that a chef would be Fiché S because he put potatoes in a salad niçoise, which is very much a a culinary no-no in France. On the more serious subject of terrorism, this young man had been identified as a potential threat before the attack. And actually, that's pretty common. Like Most of the recent terror attacks in France have been carried out by people who were Fiché S. So 
it seems like French security services are pretty good at identifying the potential threats, but less good at monitoring them. And this is probably a question of resources, because last year there were around 22,000 people who were Fichés, including 8,000 who were Fichés for radicalisation. Although obviously that doesn't mean that all of them will go on to commit violent attacks. Most of the people who are on these watch lists are French nationals. Obviously, they cannot be expelled from the country. So it's really only a small minority of people on the list who you could deal with by expelling them. The majority of terror attacks in France in recent years have been carried out by people who were born and raised here. So I think it's perhaps a bit of a political red herring to suggest that expelling people is the answer to the problem of terror attacks. Well, let's put that question to John Litchfield, our politics expert in France, who joins us as usual on the line from Normandy. Hi, John. Good to have you with us again. We're talking about the issue of individuals who were on the watch list but not expelled to their country of origin and then went on to commit an attack. Macron has asked authorities to do everything to identify those who should be expelled. Is this a solution, John, to jihadist violence or is it a move born out of political pressure? Well, I suppose it's both in a way. I mean, as I understand it, there are 5,000 people who have what are called fichiers for uh, high security alert. Of uh, There are others in other categories, but 5,000 who are regarded as radical Islamists potentially and who potentially could commit acts of violence. The vast majority of those, from what I understand, are French-born. Therefore, they cannot be expelled. The idea that somehow, you know, this is something only associated with recent immigrants or people who are born abroad is wrong. And if you look at the, you know, unfortunately, some of the terrible terror attacks that have been in France in recent years, Mohamed Merah in Toulouse, the people who committed the Charlie Hebdo and um, associated hyper attacks were uh, French-born, you know. So being radicalised does not necessarily mean you're, you're not French or French-born. That being said, it's obviously correct, given that they had this young man who they were aware of as, as a very possible threat. His whole family seems to have been a threat. It, was, it is reasonable to go back through the files and see if there are people out there that are known about who might, with the tensions boiling over now because of the, of the conflict in, in the Middle East, who might do something similarly horrible as, as this young man did in, in Arras and killing a teacher in a school where he used to himself be, be a pupil. But he can't be expelled because under present French law, no one can be expelled who came to France as, a, as an immigrant or an asylum seeker before the age of 13. That will be changed by the law that the French government has been trying to get through Parliament for more than a year now, which has been blocked, ironically, by the right and the far right, who say it's not strong enough and they don't like another part of it, which is going to allow some people who are sort of law-abiding immigrants who don't have work papers to get work papers. So there's a sort of very Franco-French political battle going on there with the, the, the right saying that this is the fault of the government for not expelling this boy and the government saying, we couldn't expel this boy and it's your fault because had we passed that law, he could possibly have been expelled before he, he committed this act. So my only feeling about all that is, is yes, it's important to, 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 to identify these people and deal with them if you can, but I don't think that gets to the core of the problem because unfortunately many of the radicalised people out there are people who are born in France. John, you mentioned there the ongoing conflict in the Middle East. Obviously there's you know deep concerns in France about what's happening over in the Middle East, but also about the impact the conflict there could have in France and the way it might be, you know, imported over here. Yeah, I've just been looking at the figures, you know. There was a long period at the beginning of the century between 2003 and 2012, I think, when there was not a single Islamist terrorist attack in France, not even one that caused injuries rather than deaths. 
In the last two decades, there have been 20 which have inflicted uh, fatalities, about one a year, some of them huge ones, as we know, like the Charlie Hebdo and, and the Bataclan murders. Nearly 300 people died in these attacks, despite far the highest de- terror and death toll of any country in the European Union, also higher than the UK, I think. So, yeah, France is a battleground for the Middle East, uh, like it or not. Uh, you know, it isn't faraway news what goes on in the Middle East. Um, it comes here, it does inflame the people who are do have very radical views. It's regarded as a, a trigger, as an excuse for attacking French targets or Jewish targets. And France happens to have the largest Muslim population in the EU, but also the largest Jewish population in the EU. So inevitably, there is there is concern that this, is, this attack in Arras, which may or may not have been directly connected, to the Israeli conflict, but you know the government seems to think it was triggered by that partly. That there will be a further incidents or attempted incidents of this unkind kind. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm afraid just looking at the facts of what happens and has happened in the last twenty years is inevitable. Thanks, John, for your analysis as always. Don't forget you can read more of John's views on our site at thelocal.fr. And we'll be back with John shortly, actually, to get his views on a very different matter. It's a matter of French farmers trying to find love in the countryside with the help of the long-running, much-loved TV series L'Amour et dans le Pré, which translates as Love in the Meadow, I believe, literally. Emma, please explain what the heck I am talking about here. Yeah, this is the hugely popular French reality TV series, La Morée dans le Pré. It's now in its 18th season, um, and this week it's in the news because it broke viewing records for a special episode. But if you read French media, you'll probably have at least seen the name because this show is really popular in France. As you said, it means love is in the meadow. It's a dating show for farmers or people living in the countryside or working in agriculture in some way. And the basic premise being that it can be hard to meet people if you live in a a small rural community or you work in an isolated job like farming. The show is actually British in origin. The UK version was called Farmer Wants a Wife. It's been syndicated to loads of countries, including the US. But France is the country where it's really taken off. Like most countries, including the UK, just did a couple of series and then dropped it. But in France, we're now in season 18 and it's still going strong. This week, a special episode of the show was on like love stories with happy endings. And it was actually the most watched show in France that night. Episodes of the show regularly get between four and five million viewers, which puts them among the most watched of the regular programmes, if we exclude things like World Cup finals or emergency political broadcasts. Well, I must admit to watching it quite a few times, actually. Look, I'm not really into love stories or farmers, for that matter, but it is a good watch. And some of the stories do have happy endings. This isn't really like Love Island, is it, Emma, where everyone looks like Adonis or Aphrodite? The people in Le Moyde on the prayer, well, normal. Why is it so popular? Um, Well, yeah, I mean, the show itself is just really quite sweet, but I think it is a a really good way of getting a realistic picture of France. As you say, it features people of all ages, sizes, appearance from all over France. So you kind of get a nice snapshot of the lives of real French people away from maybe some of the the cliches about France and the French. And you also learn all sorts of random stuff, like about the chestnut harvest in Ardèche or goat farming in the Pyrenees. Um, And it's quite good for learning a bit of regional French slang as well. But yeah, I do find it quite interesting how much French TV viewers have really taken this to their hearts. Roughly 80% of French people live in towns or cities, so this is not you know, directly linked to their lives. But I think the countryside still plays quite an important role in how France sees itself, which is why, for example, anyone with presidential ambitions has to go along to the yearly Paris farm show and talk to farmers and pet cows. There's something about farmers and agricultural workers uh, somehow seen as embodying the real spirit of France. 
Let's bring John back in now, as promised. He knows a thing or two about rural France and French farmers. John, how can we really explain the popularity of this programme? Well, I think it shows that the French have this kind of love, notional love affair with France, the idea that somehow rural life is the sort of core of the French soul and everyone you know, has an auntie or a granny that lives in the countryside they go to in the summer or weekends and that they feel sort of connection with rural areas, even though they may not themselves have been born in rural France. So I think that's part of the romantic appeal of the programme. But it strikes me living myself in rural France, where I've seen the number of farmers decline, even in the 25 years that I've had this little house in Normandy when I came here in this hamlet. There's only about 10 or so people lived there then. There were two small farms in this hamlet. There are only two or three farms in the whole commune now. and There's no farms left in the hamlet and no active farmers left uh, near, near me at all. Farmers have become much bigger. They've become in some ways more prosperous, but they're much within a kind of minority now in the countryside where they were once the great majority. And I think it's often difficult for young people, or pe- young people from farming families to meet other people from young farming families and, and a young man or young woman who wants to stay in the farming. So I think the idea of there having to be this kind of uh, dating program for farmers is kind of reflects that in a way. I think farmers who were once a sort of great majority community in the countryside are now very isolated, very cut off in many ways. Emma, Jen, just before we move on, any other TV recommendations, reality TV, French TV shows that listeners could tune into? Yeah, well, you you know I love Le Maire Petitier, which is the, the French version of the Great British Bake Off. In France, it's just bigger and better. It's a two hour long show of people creating amazing cakes. And yeah, it's brilliant. It's got all the drama and it's got a surprising amount of swearing for a show on baking. This is where I first learned a lot of my best French swear words. Mm, okay, sounds good. Jen? Uh, I really like the show N'oubliez pas les paroles. It's basically Don't Forget the Lyrics. And it's really interesting because it's all French songs. And so you get these French people that come on and they're sort of tested on their ability to remember the lyrics to these really obscure songs from the 70s or 80s. And I love watching it with French people because they'll be like, oh, I can't believe you haven't heard of this random song from like 1978. And I'm like, it never made it to the US. <laughs> Sounds great. I recommend um, BFM TV. Anyone watch that? Just the <laughs> <Yeah>. news. <laughs> Rolling news. Yeah, it's a good watch. Now, for all the good things about Paris, one of its major faults highlighted over the years has been the disconnect between Paris itself and the suburbs, particularly the poorer ones. In recent years, and indeed over the years to come, authorities are spending billions of euros on improving transport links between the suburbs. The scheme has been called the Grand Paris Express, part of the Grand Paris project to transform the wider Paris urban area into a modern metropole. It's about time we had an update on it. Jen, over to you. Yeah. So like you said, Ben, this has been an ongoing conversation for quite some time, over a decade now, actually. And in November, we're finally going to see the first trains tested on what's going to be the future Metro Line 15. So basically, in 2010, Paris regional authorities and the French government started thinking about a large scale plan to expand the Paris metro system out to the suburbs and make it so that each of the suburbs are connected to one another rather than just to the center of the city. So currently, if you live in one Paris suburb, you are either going to have to take a bus or probably a train back to the center of Paris and then board another train just to go to the suburb that's directly next door to you. That's where the Grand Paris Express comes in. So the idea is that there will be four new high-speed automated metro lines, the 15, the 16, the 17, and the 18. And then they're going to extend some of the existing lines, so line 11 and line 14, 
out into the suburbs. And the goal is for these new metro lines to create a sort of rail ring road around the greater Paris area. And that's going to consist of the city, the inner ring suburbs, and the outer ring suburbs. And the goal is that by 2030, 90% of people living in the greater Paris region will be within two kilometers of a rail station. Mm, Now, this Grand Paris idea is aimed at improving the lives of residents in the suburbs and reducing inequalities. There's far more to it, Jen, than train and metro lines. Yeah, so it's also just generally about building up the suburbs and making them more accessible. So the plan also includes the goal of building 250,000 new homes around those 68 new metro stations that are going to be built. And these are going to include various options at different price points. So there will be options for students and for those that qualify for public housing as well. And part of the push for constructing new homes and apartment complexes is that there is a housing shortage in the city of Paris. And even though there are rent controls on paper, it's still super expensive to rent or buy in the city. And so many people, especially those that work inside the city, are finding themselves priced out. And so it's actually really cool. If you go to the website for the Société du Grand Paris, which is the third-party public organization that's heading up a lot of the construction for the project, you can see their mock-ups of what these new condominiums and apartment buildings are going to look like. And they're really emphasizing building spaces that have a lot of green and outdoor space, as well as communal areas. So imagine like a shared rooftop garden. It's really cool. I would consider living in one of these new places as well. And then the other part of building up areas around these new metro stations is there's this goal of investing in new economic hubs across the greater Paris area. So La Défense, uh, which is already a financial hub, will continue to be one. But then you'll also have Plaine Commune as the cultural and creative center, Roissy Charles de Gaulle as the international trade center, Le Bourget as the aeronautics center, and then the Saclay Plateau as the new scientific and technological innovation center. Wow, sounds great. Jen, give us an idea of when we can expect to ride on these new lines. They're all going to be ready for the Olympics. Is that right? <laughs> I wish. No, it's going to be a couple of years before these new lines open up. COVID-19 did cause some delays, um, but the extension of line 14, actually, uh, to the Saint-Denis-Pleyel uh, RER station is scheduled to go through this spring before the Olympics. As for the rest of the Grand Paris Express lines, they're probably not going to start opening up to the public until at least the end of 2025 at the earliest. Uh, first, we're going to see the southern portion of line 15 become available, and then gradually we'll see other lines opening up to the public from 2026 up until 2030. Just on the subject of express train lines, aren't they meant to be building this express link between Paris Charles de Gaulle Airport and Central Paris, Emma? What's the latest on that? It feels like it's all been forgotten, has it? Yeah, that's been like a really long running saga. Basically, in the end, what they decided was that they weren't going to start work before the Olympics because they didn't want it all to be, you know, under construction for the Olympics. So we're starting work after the Olympics and it will apparently be ready for 2027, they say. But in the meantime, I'm afraid you're still stuck with rattly old RERB if you want to go to the airport. Right, okay, great. Thanks for those updates, guys. Let's move on. Now, GP doctors in France are not happy. They've been staging regular strikes in recent months with surgeries closing and patients left struggling to get an appointment. The system does not appear in good health with doctors' grievances running deep, so we can probably expect more surgery closures in the future. Jen, France is very proud of its health system and health often tops the table for the most important matters for French voters. But all is not well at the moment with French GPs, can we say? Yeah, you could say that. So primary care doctors went on strike on Friday and it's an unlimited one, which means it could run on for a while. Basically, GPs have spent the last several months protesting in order to get an increase in consultation fees in order to help make the field more attractive to young professionals because of the current shortage. 
The primary care doctors also want prices for appointments to be raised because they feel they have even more on their plates in recent years, especially when it comes to administrative tasks. In December, Christelle Odigier, a general practitioner near Lyon, told Europe One that with an increased consultation fee, the doctor would then be able to give approximately 20 to 25% of their work time that is normally spent doing administrative tasks, so that comes out to about 10 to 15 hours a week, to an administrative assistant. So meaning they would be able to spend more time with their patients rather than doing paperwork. In their call for walkouts, the Confederation of Unions representing French doctors said they want more funds to make our profession more attractive, to reinvent the public health model of which we are so proud, and to ensure that all French people have the care they deserve for the years to come. And the GP's main request is to have the basic consultation fees increased to 30 euro from the current 26. France's public health system tried to compromise with them by agreeing to raise fees by 1 euro 50 starting in November, but many doctors did not see this increase as substantial enough, and they are protesting for more funds. Have we got an idea of how big this walkout is? How many doctors are going to take part? So as of earlier this week, unions representing generalists said they'd seen a little over half of the GP practices closed in protest, Um, but there have been some regional variations, so some places might have more primary care doctors walking out than others. And if you're ill, Emma, there's been, you know, various strikes in the past. There's, there's one this week. There'll probably be more to come. How do people access care when the doctor's on strike? Well, I mean, obviously, if you have an accident or you need urgent medical attention, you should either go to the hospital, to the emergency department, because hospitals are not affected by the strike, or call 15 for an ambulance. But if you have something that's not an emergency, but you still need medical help, there are a few options if your GP is on strike. The first one is to try another GP. So like, unlike the UK, where you can only visit the GP you're registered with, in France, you can visit any generaliste. There's also a great service called SOS Médecins, which provides sort of house calls and out-of-hours services that you can use. And finally, do not underestimate your local pharmacist. They're great. They do a minimum of six years of training. So they're really knowledgeable. They can give you advice about ailments. They do treatment of things like minor wounds. And if they think your condition is more serious, they're also really good at like signposting you to the best services mm. in your area. Okay, so we've heard what GPs in France want, but what about the government? How does it want to change how they work? Does it need to change? Well, I mean, in many ways, the GP system in France is changing for the same reason as every other European country. People are living longer and there are more people living with chronic conditions like maybe diabetes, for example, which need to be managed in the community. But in France, there's also an issue that we've talked about before of there not being enough GPs in certain areas, what are called uh, desert medical or medical deserts. This one is partially being addressed already by lifting the cap on the number of medical students allowed to train to allow more doctors to train. But obviously that's going to take a while because it takes about eight years to train a doctor. So in the meantime, the French health ministry is looking at different ways of working for GPs, including getting more of them to work in health centres where you might have maybe two or three doctors or perhaps also a nurse or a midwife. And to audiences in the UK or the US, that might seem pretty obvious. But traditionally, that's really not how GPs have worked in France. They usually practice alone and their office is quite often just a room in their house. Traditionally when medicine was a very male dominated occupation it was actually the GP's wife who would do admin like sending letters and booking appointments and everything. That doesn't really happen anymore and we do have plenty of lady doctors but there are still plenty of doctors who have a consulting space in their house while others might just have like a room in a shared residential block so it's kind of less medicalised almost than medical centres. So the government is trying to look at these more efficient ways of working like shared offices or even have GPs based in a hospital which is currently being trialed in Marseille. But the stumbling block to a lot of these ideas is how GPs are employed. GPs are not 
employed by the French Health Service. They're actually self-employed and essentially they're just running a small business offering a service, so just like a lawyer or a plumber. And that means that the government can't assign a certain number of doctors to a certain area. It's up to the individual doctor where they set up their cabinet. And the government also can't control whether they work from their home or from medical centres or anywhere else. All the government can really do is like offer inducements. But historically, I think the groups that represent Generaliste, they've not always been all that open to change. So we might not see any big changes coming soon. Thanks, Emma. Yeah, GPs in France not happy. My GPs actually just left the profession. She just couldn't cope with the stress anymore. So things are bad. Uh, that's my second doctor, actually, to have left the profession. Do you want to know what happened to the first one? Is it something you did? I don't know whether it's really linked to me. He did retire shortly after I paid a visit. <laughs> so it might You be. might need to tell us more about this all one. Right, well, look. I was new in France. And when you come to France, like the GP appointment, like you say, you've mentioned this fee you've got to take. And I was told to take 23 euros with me, you know, that you pay up front. You know, I wasn't coming from England. You don't pay the doctor. So I had 23 euro one piece coins in my pocket. You know, I'd literally just come off the plane. I couldn't speak a word in French. I had a really bad sore throat. Sore throat in French is what? Malala Gorge. That's all I remember. All, all I rehearsed was going in, Malala Gorge, Malala Gorge. I went into this guy's office. I think it might have been his house. And it was the old family doctor of my in-laws. This They recommended him. And I went in and I just said, Malala Gorge, pointed to my throat. And he kind of jested for me to take my clothes off. And I was like, no, 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 Malala Gorge kept pointing to my throat. And he's like, yeah, we, we take, you know, jested again, take my clothes off. And I'm like, what? And I, I was like, everything. And I jested everything. He went, we... I'm like, what the hell is going on here? I was like, Malala Gorge. You know, I kind of pleaded one last time, Malala Gorge. And he's like, everything told me to lay on the bed. And what I didn't know at this point is that when you pay for an appointment in France, oh, sorry, when you go for an appointment, they often check, you know, the vitals, your blood pressure and stuff. And they ask you to remove part of your clothing. I still, looking back now, my heart is racing here telling this story. I can't believe I got naked. So, Well, hang I, on, you took everything off. I took off. everything off, yeah, because he said he gestured everything. Like, obviously... The, You're supposed to leave your underwear I on know. I, well, even my trousers, like, I'm just going malala gorge. And then he's like... And the work, look, it gets worse. The thing what happens next is I take my trousers and I hang them on the back of my chair. Then I hear it. 23 one euro coins fall out the pocket and go literally to every corner of this guy's office. And I'm just like, oh, pardon. And then I could have left them, you know, thinking that's his money, isn't it? I should have just left them and got this over with. So I started to get down on all fours and pick them up one by one. And one of them was like right underneath his shoe. And I remember <laughs> I remember lifting his shoe slightly at the front and taking thing, just going, pardon, pardon. And it took me about five minutes. I gathered them all in, put them on his desk. And he gestured to go over to the bed and I lay down. He went, oh, we Malala Gorge. And then told me to get dressed straight away. <laughs> Absolutely devastated. But um, I th yeah, he retired slightly after that appointment, actually. Apparently. I'm not surprised this completely naked Englishman crawling around an office on his office floor. But that would have finished me off. I went me. home telling my in-laws, your family doctor's a pervert. And he probably went home to his wife going, you know, this English pervert came into the office. Anyhow, yeah. God, that really brings back uh, bad memories of when you first arrive in France. So Anyhow. basically the GP shortage in France is your fault, is this what yeah, you're saying? Yeah, I've got rid of two of them, yeah. Blooming hell. Okay, we should move on, guys. It's slightly health-related and very important for me, this, Jen. I think you're going to answer this. Look, McDonald's, Jen, I occasionally go there in France. I feel a bit guilty about it. You know, it's not known for being the healthiest of foods. But perhaps you've got some good news for me to ease my bad conscience because there's been suggestions, rumours even, Jen, that McDo, as it's known in France, is actually healthier than a McDo elsewhere in the US or the UK. Is this true, Jen? 
Well, sort of. I feel like I should start off with saying that not all McDonald's are created equal. So in France, you might walk into a McDonald's and find some delicious macaroons or pastries on the menu. And of course, the new McBaguettes. My fellow Americans might be surprised to hear this, but most French McDonald's also let you buy beer. But if we actually want to judge whether McDonald's is healthier in France, there is this one study that compared Big Macs across the world. That's because the ingredients vary a bit based on the country. And so McDonald's in France, the Big Mac in France, is actually slightly healthier than the one sold in the U.S. It contains 27 grams of protein rather than 25 in the American burger. It's slightly less caloric, so it's got 510 calories in comparison to 540 in the American Big Mac. And the French one also has a bit less salt, less carbs, less fat. But oddly enough, it's still not the healthiest Big Mac in the world. Israel actually gets to claim that prize. But I think Part of the reason people will usually, my fellow Americans, tend to assume McDonald's is healthier here has to do with this idea that food standards in the EU are better and EU sourced ingredients are better. And I mean, McDonald's in France does follow EU rules. So that means restricting some additives and growth hormones and stuff like that. Jen, are standards better in the EU than the US? Well, I looked into this and it's actually kind of tricky to give a black and white answer as to whether or not the standards are better in the U.S. or the EU. Uh, The general difference is that the EU takes a more cautious, unsafe until proven safe approach. And a lot of times that means just putting warning labels on things that they aren't entirely sure about. So if you buy something that contains artificial food dyes, you'll probably see a warning about that. I mean, to be fair, different EU countries also have some of their own rules and regulations, specifically about salt and sugar quantities in food. But personally, I think the French version of McDonald's is perfect as it is. And a surprising number of French people agree with me. France actually has the biggest European market for McDonald's. And in 2019, they ranked as the second biggest market for McDonald's in the world right after the US. And it's funny because the French were really opposed to the arrival of McDonald's in the 70s. There were even these big protests from farmers and a lot of people saw it as a symbol of US economic and cultural imperialism. But nowadays, it's really quite popular. Mm, They really do love it. McDonald's is always packed around here. This story, Jen, or this subject reminds me of this story we covered about this idea that Diet Coke was banned in Europe. Is that true? (laughs) I've seen some influencers post about this. So in reality, the misunderstanding comes down to a translation error. So in non-English speaking countries, Diet Coke is usually sold or branded as Coca-Cola light. Um, And the parent company explains that as in certain countries, the term diet is not used to describe low calorie foods and beverages. So in these countries, we offer Coke or Coca-Cola light. The idea being that light is more internationally recognized. um, So Coke doesn't have to offer dozens of different translations for the word diet in different countries. You might still notice there's a little bit of a difference in taste, and that's because the Coca-Cola company uses different sugar levels based on local tastes, as they explain it. But when it comes to regular Coke, there really is a pretty significant taste difference between the U.S. product, which uses high fructose corn syrup, and the European version, which uses cane sugar as a sweetener. Mm, Okay, going the other way, the U.S. has actually banned some French foods, that's right. Yeah, I'm sure you're thinking about foie gras. (laughs) That's the big one that comes up. I mean, some parts of the U.S., like New York, they've banned the production, not the consumption of foie gras, but mostly from an animal welfare standpoint. But when it comes for banning stuff for food safety, the most common example you usually hear about is unpasteurized cheese, which is why you might get in a little trouble bringing your camembert de Normandie back into the U.S. But basically, that's because in the 80s, the FDA mandated that all dairy products for human consumption needed to be pasteurized. The idea in the U.S. is sort of that the product regulation comes after Afterwards. So instead of focusing on making the raw milk safe, they focus on making sure that all dairy products are pasteurized so that consumption afterwards is safe. 
The difference with France is that there are a lot of rules and regulations around making unpasteurized cheeses and using raw milk. So think back to those AOCs and AOPs that we talked about last week. But yeah, all of that to say, you can't bring your favorite soft, creamy cheese into the US the next time you go home on holiday. I'm sorry. Mm, Thanks, Jen. Okay, there you have it. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of Talking France. We're all off to have a Big Mac and cuddle a farmer. Thanks to you all for listening. Tune in next week for more talking points from France. 